You're listening to Wormcasts by Parabos, a podcast about worms, fluke, flies, lice, ticks and more. We go beyond the jargon into what really matters and how you can get on top of these costly problems. We'll help you get better production, improve animal welfare and help that bottom line. Hi, I'm Dr Susan Swanee. And I'm Ian Campbell. And welcome to Wormcasts. Today we're talking to James Della of the APVMA, which stands for the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicines Authority. James is the Director of the Residue and Trade Section. We'll be talking to James about the role of the APVMA, both as a registration authority for all our animal medicines and also their role in protecting our overseas trade. If you're selling a dredge, let's say, it must go through APVMA. Does it do what they aim? Is it safe as they claim? It is tested in every way. Hi James, thank you for joining us on Wormcasts. Today we are going to talk about the role of the APVMA, what this means for the farmer and for the consumer of our products and our trading partners. To start off, I was wondering, could you please tell me broadly what the APVMA is and why we have this government body. The APVMA is an Australian government authority that regulates agricultural and veterinary chemical products. It's our role to assess veterinary medicines as well as pesticides prior to approval to give confidence to the Australian farmer and the community as a whole that products are safe to use and are effective. The APVMA is responsible for regulation up to the point of retail sale. It's the states and territories who are responsible for regulating the use of the product which should be in accordance with the APVMA approved label. In terms of um, drug and chemical regulatory bodies, how does the Australian APVMA, uh, how's it viewed by the rest of the world? So the APVMA is highly regarded around the world. Our risk assessments are undertaken in accordance with international best practice methodology and we have been involved in the development of that methodology over the years. We also work with international regulators when the opportunity presents itself to conduct joint reviews. A good example of this was the first ever trilateral review of a veterinary drug in 2016. We worked with our counterparts in Canada and New Zealand to share the review of the first use of meloxicam for pain relief in sheep. Perhaps you could go into a little more detail about some of these aspects. In regards to animal medicines and treatments, can you break down what the APVMA does into the various roles and describe them a little more, please? So the assessments are broken down into different scientific disciplines to address the safety, efficacy and trade criteria that is described in our legislation. So the residues and trade section that I look after is responsible for assessing data related to the level of residues in food commodities. This is because components of veterinary medicines can remain in the animal for some time after treatment. So we consider consumer safety associated with a level of residues expected in food from the proposed use pattern at the recommended withholding period. We then establish a maximum residue limit, which is the maximum amount of residue allowed in that food commodity, and that is linked to the label use pattern. How, how do you establish what is safe here as, as, a, as a residue? Well, that's a good question. So for us to consider consumer safety, we conduct a dietary exposure assessment using internationally accepted methodology. So we calculate the consumer exposure by considering the level of residue expected in the food and then also the level of consumption of that food commodity. We then will compare the level of dietary exposure with the health-based guidance values, such as an acceptable daily intake, which is a health standard that is derived from toxicology studies. We also consider the implications that the level of residue 
that may be present in food commodities that may be exported overseas may have a, on our international trade. So we consider if the treated products can be sold in our overseas markets. So the APVMA has a number of other assessment teams. They include the chemistry and manufacturer team that look at each formulation, the packaging material, and the product shelf life. The human health assessment team, which look at the toxicology studies of the active, and the worker health and safety implications associated with the product. So the other guys that will recommend the first aid and safety directions on each product, they will also establish the health-based guidance values that we use in our dietary exposure estimates. We have the environment team that look at potential adverse environmental implications associated with the use. And we do have an efficacy and target safety team. So they're responsible for determining that the product will work as claimed. So it doesn't kill the pest or disease on the product label. They will also assess whether the product is safe for the treated animal. So to put all this together, we have a team of risk managers. So they are responsible for overseeing the process and putting all the recommendations from the different risk assessment teams together. And they came up with a final recommendation and a final a label that will be approved and be on the market of the product. So it's important to note that we are in the business of risk assessment and that the statements on the product labels that will describe the directions for use that has been assessed to be safe and efficacious. It's for this reason that it is important that product labels are followed by users. Pretty complex stuff. Can you, can you describe the process for accepting submissions from veterinary medicine companies for registration of new products? So registration applications need to be submitted by the veterinary medicine company and needs to include the data to support the proposed use pattern. Often companies do not register products for use in species where there is not a big market. We call species like goats and alpacas and camels minor species. So for this reason, we do have a, a program called a minor use program, which allows for any group to apply for a use pattern for a minor species to be approved under a permit. Supporting information, however, may be required to support that application. So what are the requirements for these products to get registered? Uh, what does the company have to supply to the APVMA? So we have guidance on our website about the type of data that should be submitted with an application. So the type of data will vary depending on the proposed use pattern and how it may differ from what's currently approved. So for example, if a product is to extend an existing product to control an additional parasite, but the treatment regime, the species, the withholding period, all that information is unchanged, then only efficacy data for the new pest may be required. For a brand new active constituent, however, for a use in a food producing animal like sheep, each risk assessment area that I talked about before will need to be addressed with data. So we do offer what is called pre-application assistance to any prospective product or permit applicant. So it's through this process that we can provide structured guidance for the submission of an application. This will outline the types of data that is required to get a proposed use pattern onto a label. We do encourage our applicants to use this process to help guide them with their submissions. And I assume doing that, you'd actually speed up the process for those companies too to get their product through if they're getting that guidance from you? Yes, it can prevent, I guess, issues um, with an application, uh, which will in turn um, speed up the, the process as a whole. Um, with time, the recommendations can change. You know, for instance, uh, I know I was very involved with injection site work on sheep and, and very keen to see that be changed. Um, or in, in some instances, the efficacy of products changes, and particularly with the parasiticides, but the labels don't seem to change accordingly. Um, is this due to the difficulty in getting small changes made without having complete reviews of the product in question? Well, a proposal for a label variation does need to come from the product registrant. Um, our level of assessments um, are fit for purpose and will depend on the, on the nature of the change being proposed. 
there are many non-technical label changes that won't require any new data to be submitted. An application, however, does need to be made. But some changes, however, will require data if the risks are different to those risks that are currently approved. We do note that labels need instructions on how to use the product in a safe and effective manner. So I suppose an example of this was uh, I'm aware that Zolvix Plus came out after Zolvix and it, it involved an addition of abamectin to the monopantal, where, whereas um, the straight Zolvix was just monopantal on its own. And the Zolvix Plus actually had a shorter ESI. Um, so I was just wondering how long it, or how difficult or how long it would take to have that label change on the on the Zolvix to, to match that of the Zolvix Plus. Presumably it should end up with the same sort of withhold period or ESI. Yeah, so funny you should ask about this one. As the label for Zolvix was recently changed and the ESI was reduced from 115 to 84 days in line with the ESI for the newer product Zolvix Plus. Um, so we did need to consider um, whether or not that ESI um, could go from one product to another. In, in this case, we did support that. Um, but the product registrant did need to submit an application to facilitate our consideration of that change. Much of what you look at is related to safety and ensuring there's not residues in the meat, milks, egg, eggs or honey. Could you elaborate on the withholding period and export slaughter intervals we see on the labels and why are they so important? So withholding periods and export slaughter intervals, known as ESIs, um, they're both intervals of time to allow for residues to deplete from edible tissues, and that's namely fat, muscle, liver and kidney. Withholding periods and ESIs, however, may consider different endpoints as they serve different purposes. Withholding periods are the time required for residues to decline to within the Australian MRL, and therefore compliance with the withholding period is required for the sale of the animal's produce for the consumption within Australia. ESIs, on the other hand, that's the time required for residues to decline to a level where there is not a significant risk to export trade. So withholding periods considering um, sale in Australia where an ESI is considering sale overseas. Exports are very important to the red meat industry and our trading partners may have different MRLs or no MRLs set at all. This can be due to differences in the use pattern in Australia compared to overseas owing to different pest pressures being problematic in Australia, requiring different treatment. Now, sheep are a major production species in Australia, but that can't be said for some overseas countries that we export sheep meat product to. Now, differences in approved use patterns is the main reason why there, there are differences in MROs around the world. So if residues are in meat or offal at levels higher than an important country's MRL, then there is a risk of that market closing to the Australian exports and that could be detrimental to the entire industry. So it's for this reason to help maintain market access that the APVMA establishes ESIs. So many would be aware that there is a specific question on the National Vendors Declaration regarding compliance with the ESI and it is important that that question is answered correctly. If you have any questions you feel we can help you with, or if you'd like to share an experience you've had dealing with a specific parasite, or if you have a topic you'd like to discuss, please drop us a line on the email, wormcasts at paraboss.com.au. You're listening to Wormcasts, brought to you by Paraboss. We're talking to James Della of the APVMA, which stands for the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicines Authority. Some products, especially older ones, don't seem to have ESIs. Why is this and, and what should we as farmers or vets do when that's the case? Yeah, so that's a good question. 
Um, so the APVMA routinely started considering ESIs in the mid-2000s. So um, older products may um, not have an ESI or specify that an ESI is not established. And it's because the APVMA has not done the assessment for an appropriate ESI and we might not have the data to do so. So where a label statement says an ESI is not established, the withholding period must be complied with. In many cases, compliance with the withholding period may be acceptable as an ESI, particularly if that product has been used for many years without any trade incidents. However, the product registrant may have additional information or advice for farmers and they should be contacted as described in the label statement. We do encourage registrants to submit applications for assessment of an ESI if their old labels have an ESI not established on the label um, because we do prefer that all products list a numerical ESI. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, But let's go on to sort of the testing for residues. I assume that is done with our animal products and um, do infringements usually relate to poor adherence to label instructions? So our our colleagues at the Federal Department of Agriculture, they operate a monitoring program known as the National Residue Survey. So this program monitors for a range of veterinary medicines and pesticides in meat products and a summary of the results are published on its website. When a residue above the MRL is detected by that monitoring program, then the state control of use officers um, are notified and they will conduct a traceback investigation where they look at records of treatment um, at the farm level um, to assess if the label instructions were followed. I was wondering if we could also talk to you about goats, especially as there's a huge market now for Australian goat meat overseas and there's a growing interest in goat dairies with virtually no registered anthelmintics for lactating goats where the milk may ever be used for human consumption. I know goats are particularly tricky animals as they seem to metabolise most chemicals, for example drenches, in less than half the time sheep do, making it very hard to give them an effective dose. What are the options for goat owners wanting to treat their animals? So there are some provisions for off-label use under veterinary prescribing rights. Um, Compliance with veterinary prescribing rights is a matter for the states and territories who are responsible for this. So the goat industry can make use of the minor use permit process as goats are considered to be a minor species within Australia. The benefits of this would be a permit um, which will list approved directions for use to have a specified withholding period in the ESI um, and there will be established MRLs. A good place to start um, if you're considering applying for a permit might be to identify approved uses of goats overseas Um, and this is because the APVMA can consider um, data and information from overseas. Now we would welcome a discussion on potential uses in goats um, as part of our pre-application assistance process and we can advise on any data requirements through that process. Another potential option may be to discuss potential use patterns with veterinary medicine companies. as the goat industry grows and the market becomes bigger for goats and dairy goats, um, then there may be more interest in supporting a registration from um, a veterinary medicine company. So thank you very much for speaking to us today and giving us such a good insight into the role of the APVMA. I feel um, we've all learnt something of great value. Um, do, you, do you have any concluding remarks that you might like to make? Um, it's just for the producers who uh, use veterinary medicine products who are listening. Um, just a reminder to please follow the label instructions. Um, which provide instructions on how to use the product safely and effectively. Um, If any listener is after more information about the role of the APVMA and how veterinary medicines are regulated and approved in Australia, I will refer you to the APVMA website. Um, It has lots of useful information. 
Pubcrisp, which is an approved product search tool. Um, it can be found on our website as well. Thanks very much, James. And I think that's uh, wound us up. Thank you. Okay. In summary, I'd just like to uh, wind, to talk a bit about James's discussion and, and give you a bit of summary of what Ian and I thought about it. The APVMA's role is to ensure that chemicals and medicines that we use on our animals and crops are safe and effective. And safety obviously has several meanings from what James was telling us. It's got to be safe to the animal, safe to the farmer, safe to the consumer and safe to the environment. Also, the APVMA work internationally to help ensure that we keep our export markets and that they are safe. So our responsibility as producers is to read the labels and use the products as directed and follow the withhold periods and the export slaughter intervals and fill out our vendor declarations correctly. Our next podcast will be on fly control as you move away from mulesing. We have John Webware on the University of Melbourne McKinnon Project speaking to us about his experiences with his clients that have chosen to go towards the non-mulesed fine wool merinos in Victoria and how they've achieved this. Until next time, this is Wormcasts, giving you the power over parasites. You've been listening to Wormcasts, a podcast for Parabos, funded by Australian Wool Innovation, Meat and Livestock Australia and the University of New England. Parabos provides information in managing parasites and worms in sheep, goats and cattle. For more information, visit parabos.com.au.